Sometimes, especially right now, there are so many sad and big events happening in the world, right? And so I feel like we just sometimes feel overwhelmed. We feel like, oh, how can I make a difference? Or does it even matter what I do? But I just wanted to actually use Maximus example to remind us that you can be somebody that cannot read, cannot write, who's in a very remote area, and you still have this massive power to make this difference. Just stand up for what you believe. In this case, like protect what you think is, is worth protecting. So we shouldn't forget about that. And there are sometimes very little things that we can do to support great causes. So, you know, let's never forget the power we all have to, to make change. You're listening to Faux Real, and I'm your host, Dawn Borchardt. On this podcast, I'll be welcoming the most diverse and distinct voices in indie film for revealing conversations about craft, inspiration, and the social role of cinema in the 21st century. This is Claudia Sparrow. I'm the director of the documentary film Maxima. The film tells a story of this amazing woman, an environmental activist from South America, who is standing up to the largest gold producer in the world, which is a U.S.-based mining company. And thank you, Don, again, for having me today. I'm really excited to be chatting with you. So just to get us started, how did you first hear about this story and get involved in this project? Uh, I'm Peruvian, so I was born and raised in Lima, Peru, and then I came to the U.S. to go to college, and I came across Maxima's story in 2016, right after she won the Goldman Environmental Prize. And for people who are not familiar with it, it's basically a, a prize that is given to environmental activists. It's similar to the Nobel Prize, but for environmental activists. So it's a big recognition. And Maxima Cunha was awarded that award in 2016. So a journalist wrote a beautiful piece about her fight, about her activism. And I was just shocked to hear what she had been through, but also that the fact that that was even happening that it was happening in Peru and that, you know, at the same time was kind of representative of a reality happening all, all over the world at the hands of a transnational corporation that I thought would actually prov- will be providing, I guess, bringing progress to developing countries like Peru. And I couldn't just shake the story. Like I, I've been always focused on fiction filmmaking. So documentary was never on my radar. I love documentaries, but I never ever thought I would actually make one. And this story just, you know, impacted me so much that I just couldn't sleep thinking about it and thinking there must be something as a filmmaker, as a Peruvian filmmaker, that I I must be able to to do to help give this woman's voice a larger platform. I'm glad you mentioned that. I looked at your IMDb and I was like, oh, these films are different from this one. So I was curious as to how that progressed. So Maxima lives in the highlands of Peru, which is remote. And I assume she doesn't have electricity. And you are obviously shooting a film with cameras that require powered batteries and everything like that. So what were some of the logistics that went into making this film, given the isolation of her location and just like travel between there and Lima and things like that? Yes, definitely. Um, so you're right. Maxima lives in the Andes of Peru in, in, in a very remote area. So already under regular circumstances, it will, it will be a trip to get to her. Normally, what you do is if you fly into Peru, you land in Lima, the city of Lima, and then you would take a two hour flight to the closest city, Cajamarca, the closest city to Maxima's. And then you could in two hours drive to her home. However, the mining company enclosed, basically put security checkpoints 
all around her land, which made it really difficult to access her, to get, just get to her. And I guess everything was a challenge in, in, in shooting Maxima's story for many reasons, but the logistics ones was always a problem for that, for that particular reason. We had to take alternate routes, which meant now driving eight hours plus, literally through the Andes, to get to the closest security checkpoint to her house. And like you said, um, it's, it's in the Andes, it's very remote. There is no electricity, uh, no running water. So we had to, since we're coming with equipment, we had to bring in, enough batteries to run the equipment, right? And, and so, yeah, and also supplies for, for us, for the crews, just like food. And so not being a, when we got to the closest security checkpoint, we still had to walk to her house, which is a good 20 plus minutes. And you, you don't think much of it, but when you're carrying everything and also it's high altitude, like it's almost 15,000 feet altitude. So you take that for granted, but it's very hard to walk. And so, you know, you feel every minute, especially here with equipment. So we also never knew because we have to go through the security checkpoint. We never knew if we were going to be granted access to her. So it was always a question mark. And we were also most of the times, you know, be left there to wait while they were getting, you know, basically just waiting to see if they, if they get us through. So there was definitely a lot of logistics that had to go to be able to get to Maxima. And then we still didn't know if we were going to be able to get to her. That's a lot to go through. <laughs> yes. Wow. So kind of on that note, she lives in, you know, far away from other people, like you're saying. And part of that lifestyle, you know, she's not used to being in a city She's certainly not used to being on camera and having all these people around all the time until what, 2011 or so when this starts to happen to her. So I'm wondering what that process was kind of like, or some of the things you experienced with her as she like got used to a camera or was it not like natural at that point for her once you showed up or like taking her into Lima because there's one point where she talks about being overwhelmed by the city and like how do they even get their water so I just imagine that this entire process was a bit of like outside of her comfort zone absolutely and you know for me also even me myself as a Peruvian was was still like a big shock because I've grown up in the city uh, and Maxima's experience is the opposite. You know, she's she spent her life in nature in these like beautiful mountains and just surrounded by really the most gorgeous water bodies and just the most gorgeous, peaceful nature you can think of and live off the land. Yeah, that's how her and her family have, you know, that's her way of, of life. When I first met her, like one of the first few things she asked me was, do you know where your water, where your food comes from? And those seem like obvious questions, but to me, I had never actually stopped to think about them. I, I realized how much I took it for granted and what are we going to do if there's no food and water? She made me realize how there can be a big disconnect between us and nature. And another point that she always emphasized was like, great, you know, you, yes, you can have a degree, you can have this education, but what are you going to do the day that you actually don't have land where you can grow food, but you don't have clean water to drink? And again, it seems so basic, so obvious, but I think we've gotten used to take it for granted. And Maxima was just a huge reminder of how critical that is and how we all have a responsibility to protect that. It didn't matter where we took her outside of nature. It could be like, it could have been the most beautiful place, the most beautiful buildings, but to her, it's like if there was no nature, it was kind of 
didn't mean much to her. So it was that was really fascinating. And so when we took her to the city, she, she had been a, a couple of times briefly for court court cases. But, you know, it, it was just fascinating to witness her reaction and just how she was processing the city, because to her, it made no sense. It's like, why would you want to live in those buildings, like so disconnected to nature? Like, how are you going to grow your food? You know, where is your water going to come from? Like, it's, it's just like made no sense to her. And also the noise, like the suddenly this not chaotic environment, it was just like not worth it to her, didn't mean much to her. So uh, in terms of camera, and she says it herself, she never meant to be an activist. She just decided to like stand up to defend what she thought it was, it, to do the right thing basically, right? To, to defend nature, to stand up for her community, for herself. I mean, she's very passionate and naturally, like I think her charisma comes across, but it's, it's not something she was seeking or something she's particularly comfortable. Um, I think in a way she just got used to it because she had to do it. I think like, of course, if it was a choice um, and, I, and I think this, this is just my, my perception, it wouldn't, she would prefer not to have to do it. And, and it was a process. There was also a lot of people that through the years, like we started documenting her fight in 2016, but she's been living this since 2011. So a lot of people had approached her and her family through all that time, sometimes, you know, with bad intentions. And so it definitely took her a while also to get comfortable with us and open up to us. It was definitely a process. So in addition to you switching to documentary filmmaking from narrative filmmaking, I'm curious as to any risks or things that you had to like deal with outside of your comfort level. For example, the lawyer who's helping her talks about her family getting threatened, getting followed. Was there anything like that that you had to deal with just to tell this story? We, we didn't have any encounters like the ones that Maxima or, or I guess direct forms of uh, harassment or, or aggressions the way Maxima and her family have endured. But it, I, th- I think where I really felt it is definitely every time we were at Maxima's because her property, she's basically the only house, the only family left on that property and or on the, on that land and she's surrounded by the mine she's surrounded by mine workers by Peruvian police they basically keep an eye on her 24 7 so again it's a very remote area is there's nowhere like I, I remember the first night we spent at Maximus thinking it's pitch black there's no electricity and I'm thinking if somebody wants to come get the footage or just like you know just come with bad intentions there's nowhere to go like there's re- literally nowhere to go so, so I remember that night it really hit me like you know, it's, it just didn't feel safe. And again, we're only there for a few days and I just cannot imagine what it must have been for, for the family who continue to experience uh, this, this, this harassment. So like you were just saying, Maxima didn't intend to become an activist. And it sounds like you also didn't intend to become a documentary filmmaker, <laughs> but sure. her story is bringing all of these larger players into the role of helping her. So there's earth rights groups and human rights groups and her lawyer. How do you see you fitting into the bigger picture of this story? Like what is the role of documentary filmmaking in this? I would like to think that we are another tool in this big fight to give such necessary voices a larger global platform because one of the most shocking aspects for me of this experience was realizing how little people know, you know, people from Peru, like 
they may not even know who Maxima is. And, you know, people in the U.S. also, you know, may not be aware of these abuses that happen at, at the hands of transnational corporations that operate in other parts of the world. And they happen to operate where the, the most vulnerable communities are. There is a big disconnection. And again, this is a global problem. Like in this case, we focus on Maxima, but, it, but it's happening really everywhere. So I think that that was the biggest shock to me to just learn how little awareness there is. And I hope that as a documentary filmmaker, um, and, and like you were saying, all these other teams that are supporting Maxima, that we can just help bring awareness. You know, we need to be able to stand up really for our rights and protect these resources that are so critical for everybody. How did making this film and, you know, spending so much time with Maxima end up affecting your view of the world and your everyday life after? Coming from Peru, which is, you're being told, like, you, the, your economy depends on mining and you it's a, it's a good thing no matter what it just really opened my mind to understanding what is at stake when we're talking about mining and also the cost of in this case gold but i guess precious stones in general also it really gave me an understanding of what environmental activists are fighting for how critical our resources are and how much on a daily basis, honestly, they are being harmed. It was just like overwhelming, like opening my eyes to that. Of course, like you always hear about it. I didn't pay too much attention, but this experience, like it's impossible. It's like you open your eyes and you just cannot not look at it anymore. So I think it's definitely made me much more conscious about the environment and what I can do to on my day to day to to protect these resources, you know, and, and hopefully help bring awareness to it. I'm from Wisconsin originally, and in that state, I think one of the biggest things that people are fighting against right now is oil pipelines um, getting expanded and seeping into the waterbeds, you know, which affects everyone's drinking water and crops and general health in the area. So is there something that is going on where you live that like after making this film that you're more in touch with? I mean, I'm lucky I, in a way. Um, I live in California. I, I think that there's a lot of awareness when it comes to protecting natural resources and activism. Um, I feel like I work and get to interact with people that are like share my values. Also people who reach out also for support organizations, which has been really wonderful. There is no one specific cause that I'm particularly following here in California. I've just continued really since working on Maximas, continue to keep my focus on extractive industries, specifically related to, to Peru and South America. So I try to collaborate with other colleagues who right now are also trying to tell those stories. So I, I think that's in a way naturally where my focus, where my heart has been. So I know that Maxima's multiple court cases just continue and seem kind of never ending for her and her land. Is there anything that people can do to support her, whether that's like donating money or is there anything else that you recommend for people who are inspired to help her? Uh, yes, definitely. I think a couple of things and you can find them. I mean, if it's okay to share uh, the website, standwithmaxima.com, we have a GoFundMe campaign there. And because the family can no longer live off the land the same way that they could before, you know, and they have all these court cases for which 
Um, they do get support from organizations, but not all the time. So, you know, of course, any donation helps them support themselves and their legal fights. And then we also have a change that our petition uh, asking the mining company to stop the harassment and abuse against the family. So I think either of those options will be really helpful to support Maxima's fight. Share her story, the film, Maxima's fight represents a reality. Unfortunately, that happens everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's true. Um, well, where can people follow the film on social media, your website, or where can they watch it? You can go to the website, standwithmaxima.com. The film is also available on Apple TV, Tubi, Voodoo, and is coming out on other uh, platforms in the next few weeks as well, digital platforms. Uh, but we also have social media accounts. So if you, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Stand With Maxima, um, you, you should be able to find us. Awesome. Is there anything else that we talked about that you wanted to elaborate on or made you think about other things that you think are important to share? Um, I just, I just, I would just would like to add that, you know, sometimes, especially right now, there are so many sad and big events happening in the world, right? And so I feel like as people, we just sometimes feel overwhelmed and we feel like, oh, how can I make a difference? Or does it even matter what I do? But I just wanted to actually use Maximus' example to remind us that, you know, you you can be somebody that cannot read, cannot write, who is in a very remote area, and but you still have this massive power to make this difference, to stand up for what you believe. In this case, like protect what you think is, is worth protecting. So we shouldn't forget about that. And there are sometimes very little things that we can do to support great causes. So, you know, let's never forget the power we all have to to make change. There's no little action, you know? I love that. Thank you so much, Claudia. This was great. Your film is so powerful and I really want everyone to go watch it and support Maxima through her GoFundMe and through her um, change.org petition. I think it's really important. And like you're saying, it's her story individually, but it really trickles down and kind of affects everyone and everyone else's fight for environmental justice because these stories are so interconnected and they're really happening all over the world. Absolutely. And one last thing is we realize that how these big companies are impacted the most is actually with, when people talk about the things that they are doing that they shouldn't be doing. So, you know, it's, 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 it's good to call. I mean, they need to be called out for, for their behavior when they're not following environmental protocols and they're abusing human rights. Well, thank you so much, Claudia, for your time. I really appreciate getting to talk to you and I love your film and everyone needs to go watch it. So thank you so much. Thank you, Don. It's, it's really been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of For Real. If you head over to the show notes of the podcast, you can see where to watch the film, where to follow them on social media, and then how to stand up with Maxima through her change.org petition and her GoFundMe. The music for this episode is Lost and Bound by Talene Kali, who is actually running her own Kickstarter right now for her first solo project. I'm going to put the link for that in the show notes as well if you want to support her. She has so much more great music than just on this podcast, and you guys should really check it out. The podcast art is by Whitney Salgado. And I still have some stickers available, so DM me on Instagram if you want one. And I'm your host, Dawn Borchart. Thanks for listening.